Welcome to BiblioTalk, the coin book lovers podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Numismatic Bibliomania Society. So from that and based on the name, as you can assume, we will be talking about coin books and collectors thereof. I'm Liana, I'll be your host, and I am coming from a background of collecting coins, not necessarily books. So I'll be here to kind of mediate between our guests and the newbie to the hobby. Uh, this will be a quarterly podcast for the year, and we'll see what the future has in store, but you can expect to see us every few months with a new episode. And each episode, we will be interviewing a collector from somewhere within the hobby, we'll be talking about different topics with them each week, and should get a pretty um, good wide view of some different areas within numismatic bibliomania. Um, and then we will also be pulling a recent article from the Asylum, the print publication of NBS, to talk about with the guest. And I'll be highlighting a new or interesting book that is currently available for sale. So instead of the you know expensive and fancy out-of-print editions that collectors are more focused on, I'll be highlighting something that is attainable to your average collector and can still be purchased new. So... Um, I think that about covers our intro. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. And um, please, you know, like, rate, review, subscribe, all that. Um, it helps us to know how many people are listening and what you do and don't like about the podcast. Uh, so I think that covers it. And let's get started. For this episode, we are talking to Joel Oros. Hi, Joel. Hi, Leanna. How are you doing? I am doing very well, thank you, and in fine voice for today, I might add. <laughs> well, good. So, I understand that you are a collector of numismatic literature. Oh, my gosh, yes. I've been a collector <laughs> now for the majority of my life. So, how did you get started? Well, like so many kids in the mid-1960s, uh, I got started in coins, uh, with my father, who was uh, a roll searcher, and I spent mm -hmm. many hours around the uh, kitchen table searching for through rolls of uh, Lincoln cents. Um, my prize find was a 1909 S, which I spent wow. many hours searching for to find a VDB, but no, it was just 1909 <laughs> S, but still pretty cool. Uh, oh, yeah. Then I uh, went on uh, to, you know, my dad had a one-book library, the Red Book, and uh, <laughs> I went on to read through that and see all of these coins that we could never hope to own, but which sounded fascinating. Uh, mm -hmm. And eventually, uh, by the late uh, 1970s, when I was uh, just in my early 20s, I started uh, buying old editions of the Red Book. So that was the beginning of my uh, library. But then uh, came uh, the Christmas vacation of 1982. I was back in Kalamazoo from grad school. Uh, my dad told me that a local bookstore had a big collection of numismatic literature that I might be interested in. And, Leanna, I walk in the bookstore. There are nine boxes crammed full of uh, catalogs and magazines. Um, wow. <laughs> the proprietor wants $500 for the whole lot. And um, I, at this point, I'm in graduate school. Uh, my wife and I have a net worth of about $1,000. So so it was about <laughs> half of everything we had in the world. I didn't have a clue how much any of this stuff was worth. But uh, I decided that there was probably about a thousand pieces, and uh, it must be worth fifty cents piece. Seemed mm -hmm. logical. So I called my wife and uh, told her that I would like to do this. She was a bit taken aback, as you could imagine. She asked me, "Can you? Can't you live without these?" And I said, "No, I can't." <laughs> so, so I. Spent half of our net worth on something of indeterminate value, but I got it <laughs> home and 
turned out there was a run of the numismatists starting in 1895 and a complete run of Mail's Numismatic Monthly, a whole bunch of early stacks catalogs and early ANA catalogs, uh, probably about three or four thousand dollars worth of material there that I got for five hundred dollars. So, uh, as my dad always used to say, it's better to be lucky than to be smart. But I, <laughs> I did, uh, I did manage to get my library started with that, and I've been uh, collecting numismatic literature ever since. So as you were getting started, how did you go about finding out what those pieces were worth from that deal? Well, with with some trepidation, I uh, looked in Coin World and found that there was a, a dealership called uh, Michael and Marlene Bourne. Uh, they were the children of Ramy Bourne, who later become, became an ANA uh, board member. But they actually were selling numismatic literature at that time, and I got one of their catalogs, and uh, from the prices they were charging for similar material pieced together, that I'd actually made a pretty good deal instead of just blowing half of our net worth on nothing. <laughs> cool. So what's the appeal in numismatic literature for you? Well, the the great thing about numismatic literature to me was that uh, yeah, I, I would never, ever be able to afford so many of the, the coins that were in the Red Book. And uh, with numismatic literature, I could own them, uh, you know, albeit they would be colored pictures in a catalog, not the actual <laughs> coin. But, you know, I could, uh, I could vicariously have those things. And I could keep them at home. I didn't have to lock them up in the safety deposit box. And the biggest benefit turned out to be that I was a, a history major. In fact, I got a Ph.D. in history. And reading uh, in depth about these, these uh, coins from early American history in particular uh, really made them come alive for me. Uh, it wasn't mm-hmm. any more just uh, a Massachusetts pine tree showing. It was all about you know, the early Puritans and how they were trying to gain some sovereignty from the British crown and create an economy here in, in the New World. And uh, you know, it intertwined with people I'd read about uh, in history. Uh, who were many of whom were also involved with the early coinage of Massachusetts. So it was a, a way, as, as the old saying goes, of uh, holding history in your hands. And the, the mm-hmm. literature opened up that doorway for me. Very cool. So you mentioned being able to keep them at home as opposed to you know storing coins in a safety deposit box or something like that. What recommendations do you have for how to store books to keep them in good shape and avoid causing any damage to them? Well, you may regret asking that because along <laughs> with my Ph.D. in history, I also got a master's degree in uh, museum studies. So uh, I, I do know the, a fair amount of uh, technical information uh, about uh, how you store books. And, of course, the first thing that you do uh, is you uh, get them as far away from any source of natural light as possible. You know, I think just about anyone who's collected books has a book or two in their collection that uh, is, say, a red uh, red binding, uh, but the the spine is sort of a dull pink. Uh, because mm-hmm. the sun has just bleached it out. And, uh, you know, fortunately I live in Michigan uh, where the sun doesn't shine half the year anyway. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, I I just uh, make sure I, I keep all my uh, books in the basement um, because uh, there is no natural light down there. Also, no no fluorescent light because fluorescent light gives off ultraviolet rays just as the sun does, and that's what does the damage. So, you know, down in the basement, 
And then, of course, the other thing you have to worry about with books is uh, temperature and, and humidity. Right. Because books, they, they love to live in a climate that is kind of uncomfortable for us, uh, <laughs> cool and damp. Um, so, you know, the ideal temperature is about 65 degrees, 65 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And the ideal relative humidity is somewhere between 40 and 50 percent. So it's cool. It's it's relatively damp. Uh, where where books really love to live, and and dark because you don't want them near a window. So mm-hmm. the the now the you know you can be very fanatical about this. And you can spend what seven eight thousand dollars and buy a Liebert unit uh, that will uh, control uh, the temperature and the relative humidity, you know, to within plus or minus three degrees and plus or minus four percent uh, humidity. Uh, or, uh, as most folks can do, <laughs> you can move them into a basement. Uh, which will be uh, cool and, you know, probably around 68 to 70 degrees in most basements. And you can buy a dehumidifier and uh, for, you know, something like 100 bucks or 120 And uh, then you can dehumidify the basement so that it stays within that 40 to 50 degree, or per relative humidity uh, band. And uh, that's that's what I do, uh, and the books are very happy. Uh, mm-hmm. But the the thing, temperature, uh, high temperature is not good for books. Low temperature is not good for books. But it's the relative humidity that's really the the killer, uh, because if the mm-hmm. relative humidity drops into the dry range, uh, you know, say thirty percent or lower. Uh, the books immediately begin to dry up. Uh, the paper gets uh, kind of brittle. The the glue begins to fall apart. Uh, not good. And if mm-hmm. you let it go too far the other way, uh, up, say, to 60% relative humidity, all of those uh, billions of mold spores that are mm-hmm. around us everywhere uh, will suddenly have a nice place to grow. And, and again, I yeah. think anyone who's collected books has, has seen the mildew and the mold that forms on books that are kept in a really damp environment. Mm-hmm. So, again, you may have regretted asking that question because <laughs> I can go on about that. But it, it really, you know, those simple things of keeping them in a basement where it's dark and has no, has no fluorescent lights, uh, keeping them at about 65 to 70 degrees, uh, and then getting a dehumidifier so you keep that within 40% to 50% relative humidity, that will do a lot to preserve those books and avoid damage that will be you know a financial disaster as well as a uh, as an aesthetic one. One thing I should mention is on, on the storage uh, aspect. Um, just about any shelving is okay as long as it's finished. Uh, you just don't want to put books on bare wood because that will leach acids and, and tannins and so forth. Uh, and damage the the books sitting on bare wood. Obviously, you don't want to put the books on uh, a rusty metal shelving. <laughs> or, yeah, <laughs> that would be awful. But uh, <laughs> as long as the shelving is finished, it's it's probably okay. And the other thing, of course, the the last thing is, for heaven's sake, invest in some bookends because you know books. <laughs> Books that sag over to one side um, and are just left that way, uh, you know, eventually that utterly ruins the binding and, and yeah. you really can't fix it. So mm-hmm. by all means, uh, invest in some bookends. 
let's say in the case where that does happen and there's a problem with the binding, what are some of the pros and cons of rebinding books? Oh, this this is a great question, and it gets into uh, the the different kind of collectors that we have. Uh, because depending on the type of collector you are, there's a very different answer to that question. Um, <laughs> years ago, I, I wrote an article uh, called Lawrenceville versus Louisville, uh, and it was uh, epitomized by two two collectors. The one who lived in Lawrenceville uh, is Scott Rubin, uh, who mm-hmm. is a man who has spent his entire collecting career uh, collecting for knowledge. Um, over mm-hmm. 12,000 numismatic catalogs, uh, which he uses to trace uh, the, the pedigrees and the provenances of coins from auction to auction. And he's the, the go-to guy uh, whenever... Uh, auction ears need to say, all right, who owned this coin before our consigner? Mm-hmm. Scott can tell you. So he, he collects for information. Um, Scott couldn't care less really uh, what the, the catalog or the book looks like as long as it has information in it that is useful. So uh, there are some very nice things in his collection, but there are also some ratty-looking things that uh, most people would say, put that in the recycle bin. But it's got <laughs> valuable information that, that he needs. So that's the Louisville, you know, collect for information um, uh, approach to collecting. And then, or probably the Lawrenceville. That's Lawrenceville. Uh, the Louisville uh, was epitomized by the late Armand Champa, who I believe, Leanna, is, it is fair to say, I don't think Armand ever read anything in any of the books in his library. But <laughs> Armand had a, literally employed a fine binder, and he bound everything that he had in the most gorgeous uh, period leather bindings with gilt embellishments all over and you know gilt edges on pages and his library uh, certainly looked like a movie set because mm-hmm. every book on it was spectacular and beautiful and wow. and so you know the the whole question of rebinding really comes down to whether you're a, a Lawrenceville kind of collector who is interested in information and really wants to have uh, the book or the catalog in its original form, um, even if that form is kind of beaten up. You know, they, <laughs> they're just looking for the object uh, for its information value. They don't care how it looks. Um, mm-hmm. If you're more a Louisville collector and, you know, you want to have this absolutely aesthetically beautiful, you know, books as aesthetic objects of art, um, you know, then you invest in the the rebinding. And it, it also matters uh, if what kind of binder you get because you can hire what I'll call a utilitarian binder uh, who will, you know, slap a cheap cloth binding on the book and, uh, you know, make it and trim it down and maybe throw away the, the covers of the uh, magazines that you're binding because, you know, they just take up space. Uh you can do a kind of a quick and dirty binding job, um, and that actually lowers the value of uh, of the things that have been bound because mm-hmm. no one's particularly proud to have a tacky-looking <laughs> utilitarian <laughs> binding on their shelves. And uh, it, it, yeah, it does sort of protect the material inside, but it probably was bound pretty quickly and hurriedly and might not stand up to a lot of use. Um, mm-hmm. 
Going to a fine binder, though, uh, generally does enhance the value uh, because you you really are getting an, an aesthetic work of art, you know, not processed leather, but but fine uh, goat skin or calf skin leather uh, that has been embellished usually with uh, gilt uh, decorations and letters and so forth, and, and you know, well well made, well sewed, well put together, uh, mm-hmm. and the really fine binders. Uh, are adept at, you know, for example, if you've got a 18th century uh, book, uh, say the American Museum, which was a, a magazine that had a lot of numismatic content from the 1790s, and it comes mm-hmm. in its original binding that's, that's falling apart, uh, a really fine binder uh, will put a new leather uh, spine and, and leather uh, boards, leather-covered boards on, and then will painstakingly attach uh, the pieces of the old original uh, spine and, and boards so that they cover the new leather as much as possible and remove okay. as much as possible of the, of the old binding. Uh, you know, that's very costly, but it is very historically sensitive and it creates, you know, a, a usable and, and beautiful book, uh, for the, for the future. One thing does have to be, uh, pointed out here, and that is that there is an old rule, uh, when it comes to rebinding, uh, is that you, you never, quite get your money back out of rebinding. So if I pay, say, $500 for a 1790s uh, volume of the American Museum uh, and the original binding is falling apart, and I pay another $500 to have a fine binder rebind it and use as much of the original binding as possible, uh, mm-hmm. When I go to sell it, I am not going to get 500 plus 500 for it. Uh, you know, the the original the the new binding, the fine binding, will increase the value somewhat. You know, maybe by 100 or 200 dollars, but uh, it's not going to increase it by 500 dollars so that I can get my money back out of it. So, are there still a lot of people? in the market who are doing the fine rebinding, or is it a challenge to find people who can do that? Uh, it is becoming an increasingly difficult uh, thing to find fine binders. Uh, it, it's an old craft. Uh, there aren't as many young people uh, taking it up as there once were. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm on my third uh, fine binder now, and though he's younger than I am, he's talking about retiring because it's a you know it's a physically demanding thing to sew through those those uh, signatures of paper and to manipulate the leather and, and to get it just right so uh, and I'm very concerned because there every year it seems there are fewer and fewer fine binders out there but uh, I've th- 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 and they always seem to be fascinating people um uh, Glenn Fukunaga, <laughs> who who used to run the Handbridge Binderies, retired now, uh, was also a, a very noted bluegrass musician, and uh, I could uh, watch him on Austin City Limits uh, on public TV. I said, "Hey, that's my binder playing the banjo." <laughs> um, so we've touched on this a little bit. I just want to be sure that we cover it sufficiently. Um, how important is condition in the literature market as compared to the coin market? You know, with coins, grade is very important for the value. Is that the same in literature, or is it a little bit less of a factor? I would say less of a factor. Um, it's it's not unimportant. I think any book collector is looking, you know, preferentially for a, a book or a catalog that is in really impeccable condition 
uh, rather mm-hmm. than, than one that is falling apart. Uh, but, uh, you know, for those uh, Lawrenceville collectors who uh, really collect information first and foremost, uh, you know, condition is, is really secondary to them. Uh, yeah, they'll take a good condition one if they can get it, but if not, they'll take a ratty one. You know, they're, they're okay <laughs> with that. Um, condition is more important, uh, certainly to the Louisville kind of collectors like Armin Champa, who, who right. want a beautiful uh, thing to adorn their shelves. Uh, but even for them, if it's really a rare piece of literature, um, they're still going to pay for something that has you know, been through the mill, uh, but it's rare and, and they really need it to, to fill a gap. In general, I would say that you know, in, in the world of coins, condition is almost everything. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. you know, a small. It's really a proxy for for price, and right. you know, if, if you want the the very best looking coin, you're going to pay the very highest price for it. It's a one to one correspondence. Um, in general, in numismatic literature, condition is a bonus. You know, if, if it's oh. if it's rare, uh, if it's uh, you know, got all the plates in inside, uh, you know, which is one of the, the great horrors of numismatic literature. When you buy a book or an auction catalog that's supposed to have plates and you open it up and you see that they've been neatly razored out, uh, that's <laughs> a bummer. But, uh, you know, as long as it's rare and it's got the, the plates that, that are called for, uh, you're going to buy it, and if it's in good condition, well, it's a nice bonus, but uh, <laughs> but it's not essential like it is in coins. So we've talked a lot about the two different camps of collectors, Lawrenceville versus Louisville. Is it is there like a fairly even split between them, or is it a case of where you know a lot of people are the Lawrenceville type, and there are a few Louisville style collectors? Uh, that's a great question, and. Um, and before I answer it, I want to uh, give myself props for knowing how to pronounce Louisville, because Kentuckians have corrected me when I said Louisville. They said, "Oh no, no, oh, yeah. Louisville." So, but, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, the, I think the answer to that question, Leanna, is is the that it most folks are something of a hybrid. Uh, most collectors are a hybrid of the two. Um, they they want the information like the Lawrenceville style uh, collectors do, and they will use their books. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, they they take great care not to damage them and uh, you know to use them sort of gingerly, um, the way a uh, a Louisville collector uh, might. Um, you know, I, I've seen a number of auction catalogs uh, with their perfect, so-called perfect binding. You know, that's a term mm-hmm. of art that book, book dealers do. You know, the paperbacks that have the, the straight spine and uh, they're just, the signatures are just glued to that straight spine. Well, I've seen so many of those that someone has, you know, they, they've opened it and it's trying to close itself. So they just ram it down until the spine breaks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you say, oh, that's a rare catalog. And you, you know, get it out of the, the dealer's bin and you open it and you say, oh, geez, it's broken in half. Um, oh. Yeah. That, there, there's a, a sort of a Lawrenceville uh, style collector who wanted that information, and damn it, just didn't want the the thing to close while he was trying to get that information. So he just broke the spine, and you know now it won't close on me. <laughs> and he got his information. So when I when I am in my library uh, and doing research, it takes me probably twice as long because. I'm forever, you know, being very careful about how I get the uh, book off the shelf. 
Uh, I'm being mm-hmm. very careful about how I open it. You know, if, if there's uh, uh, if if the spine is fragile, uh, I'll put it in a little cradle so that it, it won't you know go too far down. And you know, I know there there are folks who've looked at me and said, "Oh, for God's sake, just look it up already and and put it back." <laughs> Don't take all this time, but you, you've got to be very careful about how you handle it. So, you know, I think the vast majority of collectors are a little bit of Lawrenceville, and I want the information in a little bit of, of Louisville, and I, I want it to be a beautiful uh, work of art, particularly particularly if, if the book has an association value. You know, if it's been signed by a great collector or great dealer of the past or has their book plate in it or, uh, you know, has uh, annotations written in it by a great collector or dealer of the past. Mm-hmm. Now, that's really a historical document, and you really want to preserve it as best you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and... and before going on, I, I do have to backtrack one one minute to that question of getting books off the shelves uh, mm-hmm. because so often we we tend to get in a hurry and you know the books are all neatly aligned up on the shelf and we reach up and touch the top of the book and our finger goes into the the back strip you know where the the spine pooches out a mm-hmm. little bit, and we yank it, and uh, then we rip the back strip right down. And, you know, again, anyone who has a book collection has a number of books that the back strip is ripped down from the top because mm-hmm. someone got in a hurry and pulled it off that way. Uh, as anal as it sounds, I do this all the time. If I want a book, I'll push in the book on either side of it, you know, literally push it in, and then I'll grab the book off the shelf in the middle. Don't touch the top. I should have that engraved over my shelves. Don't touch the top of the book. (laughs) No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, So for, like, packing and shipping books, if you're selling them or purchasing them from someone, what kind of recommendations do you have for care in that situation? Oh, gosh. You know, the, there are folks who um, lovingly take care of their books uh, for 20, 30, 40 years. And when the time comes to sell, they just toss them into a, a, you know, a cardboard box and you know, minimal packing and mail them. And, of course, those those uh, boxes get dropped, they get jostled, they get poked, they get stepped mm-hmm. on. I mean, you know, Lord knows, sometimes they appear to, to go through the rinse and repeat cycle. Uh, it You know, it's, it's just a, a mess. And you get a box of what were once lovingly cared for books, and now... Uh, you know, they're, they're literally ripped up and, you know, dented and banged into each other and sometimes wet because, uh, the, the, you know, somehow it got wet in transit. Very, there are just a few simple rules for, uh, for packing them, but they're all important. Uh, first one, first rule is that every box, or pardon me, every book gets its own plastic bag. Uh, and you tape that bag shut so that, you know, you don't have a book rubbing up against a book. Uh, you mm-hmm. have a piece of plastic rubbing up against a piece of plastic, uh, just a elementary kind of precaution. Uh, right. Second, if the, if the books are really important, uh, you know, you put a book, you put a, you open the box, you put a big piece of cardboard, or two down at the bottom of the box uh, so that, you know, they're not bumping around at at the edge of the box. And then uh, as you wrap your books in plastic and put them in, put another piece of cardboard over 
the book before you put the next book in so that you've got interleaving and protection uh, so that the books, even if the box is dropped from a distance, you know, you, you still have those books cushioned and, and protected. Uh, a key, a third key thing, when you get to the top of the box, be sure to put in at least a couple of layers of cardboard at the top because uh, how many times has it happened that someone at, at the other end opens up a, a box with a with a box cutter, and you know, they yeah. slice through the tape, and they slice right into the top book. So, you know, having a couple of, of uh, thicknesses of cardboard up there, even if they slice through the tape, they'll be slicing the cardboard and, and not your books. And uh, fourth item is to make sure that you've got packing all the way around the box so that the books don't uh, jostle and shuffle in transit. And and the fifth thing, uh, it's kind of hard to waterproof the box, but again, if the books are valuable enough, I literally tape every bit of the box, uh, top and bottom and sides, so that, you know, that obviously won't help much if, if it's dropped in a lake. But <laughs> if, if, if it's left, you know, left out in the rain uh, mm-hmm. for a little while before you get home, I've had that happen before. Uh, David Sklo, uh, the librarian of the ANA, a longtime book dealer before he became ANA librarian, used to pack uh, books that way. And a couple of times I came home to, uh, you know, packages that were left out in the rain. Uh, but because he had taped them, you know, literally every square inch of that surface of the box was taped, uh, the water didn't get through, which mm-hmm. I've, I've blessed his soul ever since. So with that, in addition to the plastic bags, it kind of, it, it feels kind of redundant to also wrap the box in tape if you have wrapped the books in plastic and sealed them well? Is there a reason that you should do both? Uh, Oh, yes, because uh, water is the most amazing thing at finding finding a way through. Um, I've had books, you know, all wrapped in plastic, but a little water got in, and it turned out that that plastic had some small holes in it. Uh, you know, from a previous use or something, the little plastic bag around the book. And sure enough, mm-hmm. you know, the water gets in through those holes and, you know, wrecks the, the uh, front cover or buckles the, the pages inside. And, you know, once a, a book has gotten wet, I mean, you can do some things to try to minimize, but it's one of those things that you always notice. Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's mm-hmm. sort of like the you know the the horrible zit at the end of your nose on on a date. There's just no way you're going to notice. <laughs> so I don't I don't know a whole lot about this, so I'm hoping you can tell us more about it. Um, but I understand that the paper quality will vary for books from different eras. Oh yes. Yes, and, and in fact, I have a I have a, a wonderful story about that. Um, back when I was doing my museum studies training, uh, I worked in a museum that had a rare book archive, and mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I got to do, uh, wearing gloves and wearing a mask, uh, was to uh, hold in my hands a book that was uh, published not by Gutenberg, uh, but by Gutenberg's apprentice, uh, a man named Peter Scheffer. Uh, and this book was printed in 1461, uh, you know, at a time when there were maybe a few thousand books in the world at, at most. Um, wow. So, you know, just amazing, you know, 30 years before Columbus, the whole bit. And, Leanna, the thing that was amazing about that is that 
when you carefully opened that book, the paper was in absolutely magnificent shape uh, because it had been made largely out of old linen rags that had been shredded up and uh, and made into uh, you know what today we call rag paper uh, and it, it had very low acid content and it lasts virtually forever if you keep it in the right conditions so if I could have read medieval German, uh, which I couldn't, <laughs> if I could, I could still sit down and read that book and, you know, it would work just as well for me as it worked for its original owner in, in uh, 1461. Uh, contrast that with uh, paperback books that I have bought in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, I, I'll see that book and, and say, oh, you know, I think I'd like to reread that book. And, you know, take it off the shelf and the glue's all dried up and, you know, the pages are falling out and the paper is so acidic that you literally, you know, you try to turn a page and a chunk of the page just comes off in your hand. And, mm-hmm. You know, and here's something that's uh, 30 or 40 years old that has just fallen apart, where something that's uh, more than 500 years old is great. And the the whole secret there is in the paper. Uh, for many, many, many years, that's how papers were made. They would collect old rags and bleach them and uh, size them. Uh, with a, with alum usually, and and make them into paper. Uh, and of course, you know those older books. If you hold up the paper to the light, uh, an individual page, you can see uh, a chain pattern uh, because they dried these uh, you know macerated rags on a on a mesh that looked like a, a, a little chain. And, uh, you know, so the laid paper, it's also called uh, rag paper, is just marvelous. But it kept getting more and more expensive to use. And by about the Civil War in the United States, uh, books were getting so expensive that uh, they were really, in fact, out of the reach of most people. Uh, but then along came technology and the process for making paper out of wood pulp and it was just a magnificent thing because wood was plentiful you could make the paper cheaply and the price of books just plummeted which really helped with the increase in great increase in literacy in the the late Mm -hmm. 19th century so it was wonderful it was good it was marvelous until about 30 years after these books were printed and, you know, they'd been in heat and in cold and when they were in heat, uh, the acid and the, the lignin and the paper, uh, began to leach out and make the, the paper incredibly brittle. And there, there are some, uh, uh, videos on YouTube that show, uh, people taking old books and opening them up, literally reaching in and grabbing a handful of pages that crumble into dust in their hands. And then they mm-hmm. open up their hand and, you know, blow on their hand and all of this little confetti comes out. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that's how incredibly brittle the books became. And finally, mm-hmm. a big crisis again, uh, you know, in, in the 19... 19- 50s in particular, a lot of research was done, uh, and they discovered how to get lignin out of uh, paper pulp and how to deacidify the paper and uh, calcium carbonate added to buffer it. So now, particularly nicer books, you know, academic books, uh, reference books, uh, you know, coffee table books, typically will be uh, made with acid-free paper. That's uh, supposed to have at least a 100-year life, and probably will, will go on much longer than that. 
So it's that that period between uh, 1860 and about 1970 or so when virtually all paper was uh, acidic wood pulp paper. Uh, you know, there are a lot of books, a lot of numismatic books that were published in that era, and unless they were made specifically with fine uh, rag paper, a few were in special editions, but for the most part, they were made with wood pulp paper, and they are a mess. Uh, now, what I do as a museum person, uh, there are companies that will sell you deacidification products. Uh, one of them is called Bookkeeper. And you take the Bookkeeper, shake it up, and you aerosolize it uh, over the pages of the book. And it, that it's basically calcium carbonate lands on the pages and uh, deacidifies and, and buffers uh, the the uh, paper, uh, which is good, uh, but it can only prevent further damage. It can't reverse existing damage. You know, it, it's helpful to keep it from getting worse, but you still tend to have books that are very fragile and very difficult to use. Um, mm -hmm. That's why uh, I use the Newman Numismatic Portal for, even though I have the books on the shelf uh, of that vintage, say like from the 1920s, I'll use the portal because you know there that way it won't damage the book. Right, handling it less. So I want to backtrack just real quick to the beginning of that story. Can you just briefly explain who Gutenberg was? Oh yes. Um, Gutenberg uh, was has long been given credit for being the uh, first printer uh, to use movable type uh, to uh, you know to create a book, and um, uh, Johannes Gutenberg uh, in what is now Germany, 1453, I believe that he he produced his first uh, book, a Bible uh, using movable type. And in recent years, there have been some scholars who've uh, said, no, there were uh, people in China doing it beforehand, and there are a couple of candidates uh, in Europe who might have uh, done something sooner. Uh, but uh, Gutenberg still gets credit for being the, the first person who, it can be demonstrated, uh, use movable type to produce an entire uh, long book like uh, the Bible. And uh, okay. the the uh, Gutenberg Bibles, as you can imagine, uh, there are, I think, something like uh, 50 or so surviving that are reasonably intact, you know, just go for millions of dollars whenever they are oh, yeah. bought. But it's to the point where the ones that aren't intact, uh, people will buy them, disassemble them, and sell them page by page to collectors who, you know, can't afford a, a, an intact Bible, but they really <laughs> want something printed by Gutenberg. So even those go for hundreds of thousands. Wow. And then also you mentioned when handling that book, you had to wear gloves and a mask. Um, yes. Is that common practice for newer books, or was it just because it was from the 1400s and so delicate? Uh, it was because it was uh, from the 1400s, what's technically known as an incunable. Uh, any book uh, printed before 50, from 1453 to 1500 um, is is uh, known as an incunable or incunabula for short or for a plural. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they are rare and uh, by definition uh, they just – get rarer because occasionally one is destroyed in a fire or uh, mm -hmm. by theft or something. So uh, the library that owned it was extremely particular. Uh, they they had okay. two in and they let me handle that one, but I was sort of in a spacesuit to make sure that I didn't breathe on it, to make sure that no oils from my fingers got onto it. 
they were very particular. Um, one other riff on, on that, uh, very quickly. Uh, the people who say that, uh, that electronic media have made books obsolete, uh, I would point this fact out to them. Uh, as I said, when I was holding that Peter Sheffer incunable in my hand, uh, if I could read German, I could, I could read that book. I could use it just as well as someone 500 years ago could have used it. Um, my dissertation, which I completed uh, in the late 1980s, uh, was uh, done on the old floppy disks. Um, in fact, the big five-and-a-half-inch floppy, not the three-and-a-half-inch <laughs> floppy. And uh, guess what? Uh, it is completely lost. Uh, no one that I know of anymore has a machine that could read that floppy disk. And even if they did, it's probably the data on it is degraded, uh, you know, after not having been used for 30-some mm-hmm. years. And uh, so, you know, here you here you have something that's 500 years old and perfectly usable and something that's 30 years old and is lost forever. So uh, I don't think that electronic media has uh, quite driven books out of uh, out of the marketplace yet. Right. Yeah, that's a very good point. So I have one question that we're going to ask anyone who comes on this podcast. Aside from the Red Book, what's one book that you think every coin collector should own? Oh wow, that is the toughest question of all because. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can think of so many books in uh, so many different subject areas that are so incredibly good. Uh, you know, you, for example, the if you are interested at all in large sense, um, the books by uh, Dr. William Sheldon, uh, Early American Sense, and then it's uh, the later revision of it called Penny Limsey. Uh, are, are just amazing works of reference and incredibly well-written, beautiful to read. Um, and even though it turns out Sheldon was just a horrible, horrible human being, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, misogynist, uh, a thief, and uh, also uh, a, a person who you know, had this pseudoscience going about body types, which gave him an excuse to photograph uh, thousands of freshmen at Ivy League colleges naked for years and years. Uh, it's supposedly for uh, the, the science of uh, somatyping, you know, which turned out to be a pseudoscience, and uh, but I think mainly to get his jollies, uh, seeing a bunch of naked people. Uh, so mm-hmm. Sheldon was a horrible person, but he did some did write some amazing books. Uh, but uh, the terms of the question say just one. I will I will uh, abide by that and say that uh, if I could only choose one numismatic book to read, it would be uh, by our uh, old friend uh, Q. David Bowers. And, uh, you know, Dave has written more than 60 numismatic books, so it's tough to choose even the best book he's written, let alone all the rest. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, I would go with uh, his uh, 1980 book, uh, History of United States Coins, as illustrated by the Garrett Collection. And uh, it just as the title says, uh, it's a comprehensive history of the United States uh, colonial, uh, federal, and uh, also uh, pattern uh, coinage, and a fair amount about uh, metals and uh, tokens as well, uh, all illustrated by the the coins that Dave cataloged uh, and sold as part of the Garrett collection in 1979 and 1980. And... Uh, it, it is just the best one-volume coverage 
of United States coinage. Uh, you can, after you read it, you begin to understand how all the parts fit together, and uh, you learn about some of the fascinating characters of the past uh, who who handled those coins. Um, you know the the great collectors and the immortal dealers and. Uh, it is mm-hmm. it's just a terrific one volume book and of course like all good overviews it points you in the direction of other books that that you'll want to read uh, to mm-hmm. get more in-depth information on a single series and of course half of those Dave Bowers wrote too <laughs> And I'm sure as a side bonus it kind of gives you a glimpse into the Garrett collection which is one of those you know, well, collections that will always be remembered and is one of the achievements of numismatics. So I really appreciate that it kind of immortalizes that collection in a consumer volume. Oh, exactly. And and just a, a couple of points about the Era collection. You know, the connections with United States history. You know, the the father, T. Harrison Garrett, was one of the uh, – his, his his father founded the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. And mm-hmm. uh, T. Harrison and his dad worked very closely with Lincoln during the Civil War to keep Washington, which was a southern city, essentially, uh, surrounded by hostile territory, to keep Washington supplied and you know, move troops in and out. And you know, so there's that fascinating connection. And then uh, T. Harrison's two sons, uh, Robert and John Work, Fascinating being John Work Garrett, a diplomat, uh, you know, representing U.S. interests around the country. And uh, Robert Garrett uh, decides on a whim to go to the first Olympic, modern Olympics in Athens in 1896 and uh, does a little practicing on the ship on the way and wins the first gold medal in the shot put. So, you know. <laughs> You've got these fascinating characters and, and, you know, that connect with interesting things outside of numismatics, and uh, you know it, it, it's all all tied in uh, with the Garrett collection. And you can still uh, visit Evergreen House, uh, which is their old home, now part of Johns Hopkins University. And uh, if you make special arrangements with the librarian, you can go see uh, the library uh, where they kept their numismatic books. And if you really get lucky, you might sweet-talk them into uh, opening the trap door and uh, going down to the vault uh, where they kept the coins. Uh, <laughs> literally a trap door in the library floor and uh, down into the vault. So cool stuff. So speaking of famous collections, um, in the autumn 2019 edition of The Asylum, there was an article, um, remember, or Ken Lowe Remembered, and there's a little anecdote in it about um, when he had dinner with the Norwebs. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my heavens. Yes. Yeah, to, to really understand that one, uh, you have to know a little bit about Cleveland. Uh, which I do because I got my graduate uh, degrees from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And uh, Cleveland, like many cities, uh, is you know, sort of a down-at-the-heel section and the wealthy section. Uh, and the, when, when, Kenny, when Kenny Lowe went to visit the Norwebs, who were Cleveland aristocracy, I mean, they, they had been in all sorts of industries, uh, railroads and steel and publications and so forth. And by the time Kenny went to visit uh, Mrs. Norweb, Emery May Holden Norweb, uh, she was old money. And uh, mm-hmm. when you went from the part of Cleveland where Kenny lived on the west side, uh, you go through downtown, and then you got to the east side, which was pretty down at the heels at that point. And then you went under a, a railroad bridge, and you came out on the other side in Bratnall, where the Norwebs lived. 
And it was just like the experience Dorothy had of uh, opening the door of uh, Auntie M's house, and then suddenly Oz is outside in, in Technicolor. Uh all <laughs> absolutely gorgeous. So, you know, and you literally just go under that railroad bridge from gritty industrial to uh, old money beautiful. Uh, so, so Kenny uh, waxed eloquent about that. But uh, then meeting the Norwebs, uh, you know, Mrs. Norweb was uh, one of the great coin collectors of all time, a connoisseur of many things uh, beyond coins. Uh, you know, she she knew art, she knew manuscripts, she knew uh, literature. She was a Renaissance woman. And her husband had been uh, in the State Department, a career State Department, a diplomat in a number of different nations. So they were cosmopolitan, they were erudite, uh, they were impeccably dressed. And uh, Kenny was a, a guy who just, uh, you know, he was a school teacher. He made fun of himself about being a... Uh, uh, you know, a, a sort of uh, low-class uh, kind of guy. He really wasn't. He was well-educated, and, and he, uh, he he knew his stuff. But uh, being in the presence of the Norwebs, you know, like uh, a commoner going to see royalty, uh, and, <laughs> and he wrote about it with, with such self-deprecating humor. But but that was mm-hmm. uh, that was Kenny. Yeah, he was uh, a man who had a tremendous sense of humor. He uh, was a, a person who uh, just absolutely loved numismatic literature, and his enthusiasm spilled out for it uh, everywhere. Um, he he was he could, in fact, he managed to get me to to buy some things that to this day I wonder why did I buy them. And I think, oh yeah, because Kenny described it so enthusiastically to me, I just I just drank the Kool Aid and bought it. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he is he is has been missed for what twenty some years now, and will mm-hmm. be missed by everyone who knew him. It's just a positive force in every way. I never got to meet him, and for listeners who don't know about him, um, he founded The Money Tree, which was a numismatic literature auction company with Myron Zenos. And they also published um, a thing called Out on a Limb from 1987 through 98. And I just have to read this to give listeners a little bit of an idea of what this man's personality seems to be. Um, One of the very first sentences in the first edition of Out on a Limb, we have... One of the pleasant things about starting a journal, house organ, fanzine, whatever this is, is that we have no editorial constraints other than those legal and ethical, at least those few ethics we have. And the entire thing is in that same voice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh, yes. And he he could wax eloquent about everything from uh, Continental Airlines, which – that you know, has now been merged into United, but at that time was a freestanding airline that served uh, Cleveland uh, about how dreadful Continental Airlines was uh, to uh, the, the conversations that he had at conventions with uh, various collectors. And, you know, it, as you read through out on a limb, uh, you, you would, um, you, you would, basically just uh, read it to see, oh, what was he going to say about me? And, oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> yep, he, he got that conversation right. It, it, well, uh, one of the great promoters of numismatic literature uh, ever. And, uh, and of course, his partner, uh, My- Myron Zenis, uh Myron, uh, just a larger-than-life character, uh, far right wing in his politics. Uh, he and I never, uh, never ever got along uh, when it came <laughs> to politics, but we always had a great time with numismatic literature. And, uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, there's a great story about how 
he got the name nickname of Rocky uh, Myron. And Myron was in Mexico uh, speeding to try to get back, catch a plane back home. Uh, of course, home for him was Rocky River, which is a suburb of Cleveland. And uh, so Myron uh, gets pulled over by the local law enforcement. And time is very precious. He's about to miss this plane. So he figured that what he would do is just bribe the policeman uh, and go on his merry way. Uh, so he pulled out his license and he discreetly uh, tucked a $10 bill uh, behind his license uh, so that uh, the policeman could get it without being seen. And the policeman looked at the license and saw his address, and he looked at the $10 bill, and he shook his head, and he said, Come on, Rocky, you can do better than this. <laughs> so, uh, so ever afterwards, Myron was Rocky. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, the article in the asylum was very interesting, and all of the out on a limb and the money tree are both up on the Newman Numismatic Portal. So anyone can go take a look at them, and even the literature auctions are have little little golden nuggets of comedy hidden in the listing. Oh gosh, yes. Yep. <laughs> Kenny was uh, Kenny had a great sense of humor, and no mm-hmm. one caught more. Uh, Black and, and his humor than he did. He, he <laughs> loves self-deprecating humor. <laughs> well, we are running out of time, so I think we better better call it a day. It has been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Well, it was certainly a pleasure for me, Leanna, and the the podcast, uh, I think, is is going to become a terrific uh, asset for the NBS, uh, sharing some of these things that uh, maybe are a little too uh, long to be shared in an article or sometimes a little too uh, personally centered to be shared in an article in, in the asylum. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, gosh, it's 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 sure fun to talk about some of these things. So that about wraps us up. But I do want to talk about one newer book that has been released by Whitman. Uh, it's called In God We Trust by Bill Byerly and talks about the origin of the nation's motto on our coinage. Um, and, you know, for me, the historical value of coins is really what's interesting. And so finding the stories behind where these mottos came from, that's what I love about this hobby. And so um, that's what this book really does. It focuses on the Civil War's effect on our coinage because that's when the motto originated. It was suggested by Reverend Mark Watkinson that the Treasury Department should recognize Almighty God in some form on our coins. And that's ultimately where the motto, In God We Trust, came from on our coinage. Um, But that was spurred by the Civil War because, you know, the country was kind of in shambles and he wanted to encourage citizens to look to God in that time of struggle. So this book talks about multiple effects of the Civil War on our coins and currency, not just the motto. Um, But it is available from Whitman now. It's about $20. Um, So check that out if you're interested in the Civil War's effect on our coinage. (laughs) Um, And then that wraps us up for this month. We will be back in a few months with a new guest and some new topics and hope to see you back then.